So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are speaking to us, that you are filling us up with what is true, that your love is for us, that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, and, Lord, that you desire to use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was reviewing this sermon yesterday, and my 16-year-old son overheard me, and he said, Mom, you're not preaching on Job on Super Bowl Sunday, are you? It's like a double whammy. Well, it's true. We are going to kind of wander into Job a bit. We won't find all the answers, but we are going to learn some truths. And it is Super Bowl Sunday. This afternoon, the 49ers will be led by Coach Jim Harbaugh. And the Ravens will be led by their coach, John Harbaugh. Did you realize it? Two brothers are facing off against each other in the Super Bowl. Some are calling it the Harbowl. <laughs> At the end of today, one will leave the field a champion, and the other might have a no good, very bad day. I remember reading this storybook to my kids, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day by Judith Yorst. From the moment Alexander wakes up, things just don't go his way. When Alexander gets out of bed, he trips over the skateboard. At school, there's no dessert in his lunch. The dentist tells Alexander he has a cavity. At the shoe store, they're sold out of Alexander's choice of sneakers. At home, the family has lima beans for dinner, which he hates. We all have Alexander days, don't we? Sometimes things go from bad to worse. It might start out a bad hair day, then rain, then traffic, then rain, then heart disease, hurricanes, rain, the economy, homelessness. As bad days pile up, we try to make sense of it, sometimes using the cliché that is part of our sermon series on Stuff Christians Say. God won't give you more than you can handle. This line never quite resonates with me. I feel I often have more than I can handle. And I don't believe that God is up there assessing us and doling out just the right amount of customized portions of very bad stuff. I mentioned to someone that I was working on this sermon, and before I could add my opinion that this cliché was awful, she jumped in saying, I love that line. <laughs> it was my lifeline during a very bad year. My father died, my husband got sick, and one day when I went home from the hospital to take care of something, I fell down and broke my hip, and the ambulance had to come and take me to the same hospital where my husband was. And then my husband died, and I had to manage the business and the kids, and I needed that reminder that God had not abandoned me. For her, this line was a promise that she was not alone in the wild adventure of bad days that God was right with her. So some people resist this line, like me, and others are comforted. What's at the root of the phrase? Where does it come from? Research found that it's actually a misquote of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which Scott just read. Let's take a closer look at it. When the scripture uses the word testing, 
We might consider that testing, temptation, loss, suffering. The first sentence, no testing has overtaken you except what is common to all. A mother told me that when her son died, she found comfort when she realized that I am not the first mother to lose a son to war. We aren't the first person to suffer, nor, unfortunately, will we be the last. A hundred percent of people suffer somehow. It's part of being human. Maybe this past week there's a student here who flunked a test, or someone who lost a job, or miscarried, or somehow destroyed a relationship. The story of Job is the ultimate example of faith being tested through suffering. Job lost it all. His money, his children, his livestock, his property, his health. Now, you might be thinking, boy, am I glad that's not me. Well, there's something even for you in this sermon. My goal is that if you haven't had much loss or sorrow in your life, this sermon will equip you to be someone who has the capacity to care for those who do. How can we hold on to hope in the face of despair, our own or another's? Job says, if my misery could be weighed, if you could pile the whole bitter load on the scales, it would be heavier than all the sand of the sea. Is it any wonder that I'm screaming like a caged cat? Job's suffering is extreme. It's X Games level suffering. Job calls his friends around and, and they rally around him and for a week they listen to his rage. And then they can bear it no longer. They try to comfort him. And all they have to offer is bad theology. Faith plus obedience equals blessings. That's their equation. And their lectures depicted God as a condemning judge. But Job knew that his disappointments and his losses were not a result of lack of faith or obedience. He believed that God is faithful, that even though God didn't prevent the suffering, he didn't send it either. God has allowed human beings free will, sometimes with disastrous consequences. Think of 9-11. It started as a typical day in New York. Someone called in sick and didn't go to the World Trade Center that day while another person rushed to park their car and catch the commuter train. And that car would sit there for weeks because they never came back. Someone got stuck in traffic and missed their plane. And a standby passenger was thrilled to get that seat. God did not mark some families for suffering and others for celebration on that day. Yet we question, if God exists and God is good, how could such awful tragedies happen? I saw a sculpture once of Job that touched me. It was only about this big and it was bronze and I wanted to bring that thing home. If it hadn't have been over $1,000, I'm sure I'd own it. 
There was Job depicted with his fist raised and his voice yelling at the Almighty. You could see it in his face. He was crying out. And somehow that touched me and taught me, you know, maybe it's even okay to get angry at God. Even when the very structure of his life was crumbling, Job turns toward God. He raises a fist and gives God a piece of his mind, but that's okay because God can take it. And Job trusts that God is listening and that God cares and that God is faithful somehow, even in the midst of his sorrow. Being in relationship with God does not require an absence of fear or anger. Can't you also picture Jesus begging the Father in this way in the Garden of Gethsemane? Take this cup from me. If there's some other way, could, could you do that, God? Job's and Jesus' reality is not a pastel children's Bible with smiling faces drawn in muted colors. It's vibrant, it's intense, it's messy. In graduate school, I had the opportunity to serve as a hospital chaplain. And I had this experience of stepping out of my sort of pastel watercolor life at Princeton Seminary, where we studied and we thought big thoughts. And I went into the depths of New Jersey, to a trauma hospital, into the neon colors of Job moments, turning points in life that people never wanted. I was once called to a room where there was a young couple holding their newborn son who would live only a few hours. Why them? Why that life? When right next door there was a healthy baby surrounded by smiling visitors. I saw this couple cling to each other and to the hope that even in this, God was real. They would get through this. As they let go of this child, their lives were being woven together by loss. They had promised for better or for worse, and this was the worst. When we lose whatever it is we've hitched our wagon to and our dreams are crushed, something unexpected happens. We hit bottom and we find Jesus there. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Said Corey Ten Boom, a Holocaust survivor. The Ten Boom family were devout Christians living in the Netherlands during World War II. They hid six Jews in their home who all survived. But the family was arrested. Two sisters were taken to Ravensbrück and one lived to tell the story. Corey Ten Boom's inspiring journals depict how the two sisters held Bible studies. They prayed for their guards and faced death every day. Her sister Betsy was confident in hope, saying, no pit is so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Rather than why me, Betsy and Job 
plead, God, show up. Let me see you in the midst of this. Job says, where are you, God? And you know what? After 38 grueling chapters, if you've read Job, and some of you are in Bible Plain and Simple, which I was part of that night when we studied Job, I had to spread that out over a few days. You just can't sit down and read 38 chapters of suffering. After 38 grueling chapters, God shows up. And it's not a still, calm voice. God answered Job from the eye of a violent storm. It's like intensity meets intensity. And Job knew, he really knew that God was there. Job humbly replied, I admit, I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. God showed up on the ash heap and God revealed himself in Jesus. God steps into humanity, into our life experience. We see him in the manger. We see him on the cross, at the resurrection, with the gift of the Holy Spirit, and in God's people. God shows up in the concentration camp, at the deathbed, at a PTA meeting, and for me, in an elevator the day I got diagnosed with cancer. I held the devastating pathology report in one hand, and I grasped my husband's arm with the other. The shocking news had made me sort of sick and dizzy. As we waited in the bank of six elevators, finally one opened up, and there was one person in that elevator. It was a familiar face. I'd seen her from church. I couldn't remember her name. And I blurted out, I'm sorry, I don't remember your name. I just got diagnosed with cancer. That is the best excuse I've ever had for not remembering someone's name. <laughs> she lit up as though she had good news, and she did. She reminded me that her husband is an oncologist at Overlake. I didn't have to go searching for a doctor. God was providing for me before I even made it down the elevator and into the parking lot. It turned into kind of a holy moment. God was providing a way out. Maybe not miraculous healing, but the strength to endure. Look for God and his presence. It is the way out. It was not for me with a booming, audible voice of an invisible God, but another child of God who seemed like an angel to me, sent from Jesus to say, I am with you always. There's something oddly sort of freeing about having faced devastating news and coming out the other side. Now, I stand before you, I kind of look normal. There are some things that still are not quite right, and I'll, I'll make that excuse if I need it. There are other times in life when it doesn't come out so well, aren't there? But nonetheless, God is there. Now, some of you are thinking, when are we going to get to communion? And I want to think about lunch. Like, this is getting intense. Okay, stick with me. It's almost over. I have two assignments for you. Look for God and listen. 
As Alexander bemoaned his day, his mom listened and advised that some days are difficult. We all need that, just someone to tell our story to. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness in the eye of the storm. If you're either Alexander or Job, look for God. And everybody else, you know what? Just listen. It's okay to not have all the answers or any answers. If you want to get better equipped at doing this, there's that training coming up next Sunday at 4 o'clock, and there's evidently a free dinner if you register. Your listening ear, your presence, can be the reminder that God cares, that God loves. Your presence might save someone from taking that next drink or pill or falling into despair. You are the face of Jesus, who theologian Karl Barth called God's forever yes to humanity. We see the cross and know with firm and certain hope that God is with us on the plane, in the hospital, or even if our team choked in the playoffs. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not count the glory of heaven something to hold on to, but you emptied yourself. You became a human being. You joined us on this planet, Lord. You suffered with us. And so I ask that you would so anoint this congregation of people, you would anoint Bellevue Presbyterian Church, that we might walk with those who suffer. Lord, that people might know the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that people might know the power of the resurrection, that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. So God, whatever circumstances folks are in right now, whether there's a student who feels so much pressure at school that they wonder if life is worth living, whether there is a person whose relationship seems so broken that they seem so isolated, they wonder where you are. Lord, whether there's someone who's faced a financial distress or a difficult diagnosis or a long fight with cancer, Lord Jesus, come into those places and use your people. Use us to remind others that you are there, that, Lord, we don't need to provide the answers, that we can be in relationship with you no matter what's going on. So come, Holy Spirit. Bring us more of your presence, more of yourself, more hope, more trust. In Jesus' name, amen.